And we're live, friends from around the world. What is up? Today we're doing something special, something a little different. Normally these live streams, we have one person from each position. Today we decided to do a one-on-one session with an expert in the field. Election integrity is a deep and complex topic. And we felt doing a one-on-one would help us cover the most ground. That said, I'll be doing my best to fairly present the opposing side and all their arguments being made. In addition to that, the audience will be able to ask our guest, Isaac, any questions they have. We'll be going through the main claims being made. Do any of them hold water? Is there anything to be concerned about? Are, are our elections hackable? The live comments is not a place for trolling, hate, or cheap talking points. Please take the time to write out thoughtful comments and questions. If this is your first time on our channel, subscribe, like. We have a Patreon as well. We do live debates every week on many interesting topics, primarily the Israel-Palestine conflict. But today we're doing something different, something special, something very relevant. Without further ado, it's an honor to bring on Isaac Saul. Welcome, Isaac. Hey, Adar. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing great. So just a little background on who Isaac is. Isaac Saul is a senior politics reporter. He's an editor and founding member at A+, the positive news outlet founded by Ashton Kutcher. I, uh, Isaac, I hope I'm reading off a relevant bio. If not, you could... Uh... That's on point so far. <laughs> okay, cool. He also writes the independent, nonpartisan, ad-free politics newsletter, Tangle, which I highly recommend checking out. You can find a link to that in the description of this video. His reporting focuses on Congress elections, immigration, and climate change. His writing has appeared in Time Magazine, CNN, the New York Daily News, The Forward, Yahoo, The Huffington Post, Quartz, and has been cited by the New York, the New York Times, Washington Post, and Fox News, amongst others. Great to have you here. Thanks, man. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, so before we get started, it's worth mentioning that while I actually have come across Tangle Newsletter, I found out about you through a very comprehensive Twitter thread you put together, essentially addressing every single argument being made regarding election fraud. I actually linked that in the description as well. If everybody, if anyone wants to check that out, it's, it's in the description. So Isaac, has that been your, your most viral Twitter uh, piece yet? It's pretty close. Yeah. I think it probably is, is the most viral Twitter thing yet. And I will say, um, you know, I'm, I love the the format of the show and what you're doing here. It is super aligned with uh, what I do with my newsletter tangle, which is I present the right's best argument. I present the left's best argument. And then I give my take about whatever the big news story of the day is in us politics. And that kind of attitude, the inquisitive curiosity, was very much behind um, the Twitter thread about election fraud, which was pretty much, you know, I was seeing a bunch of claims p- claims pop up. Uh, a lot of this stuff on the surface looked really misleading and wrong to me, but I'm also conscious of the fact that election fraud does happen and voter fraud does happen. They're, they're not non-existent. And so I started plugging away and, and using my skills as a reporter to try and investigate some of this stuff. And I just wasn't really seeing any kind of rebuttal or collection uh, to a lot of the most viral claims that that were going on across the internet. And so I started that Twitter thread to just keep a track of some of the the election fraud claims that were out there and sort of what I was seeing compared to 
to what a lot of the viral stuff was saying. Great. So it's, it's, you know, it's good to see that a, we're aligned in, in our uh, philosophy. Hopefully this is the beginning of a fruitful relationship between, between us and, and what we do. Um, the, the Twitter thread is now, I, it's at like 350 like different posts, right? So it's gone pretty, pretty comprehensive as the, as the days pass. Has there been anything that you've found any fraud that people should know about that something that's not baseless? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, the, the way it started actually was I had, kind of posted 10 or 15 or initial tweets that were tied to some of the most viral claims I was seeing, uh, none of which have held up um, since I first started tracking them, which was about November 4th, November 5th, the day of the election, the day after. Uh, and and then I issued a challenge on Twitter. I basically said, if somebody can send me proof of some widespread election fraud in this election, I'll Venmo you $1,000. And that brought in like the internet um, and so far there, the, the first guy who tweeted something at me that seems to potentially be holding water was a case in Texas of a social worker, a woman who I believe filled out about 130 absentee ballots on behalf of some people unbeknownst to them. And then, you know, put their votes in and drop them off somewhere. Uh, and she got caught. It's unclear who the votes were for. Um, I know a lot of the allegations of fraud have been about Democrats committing fraud. I am unclear still on whether this woman was stuffing ballots for Democrats or Republicans, but uh, she's going to court. Basically she got caught. And so I'm very much hoping that she gets found not guilty or else I'm going to owe this guy a thousand dollars. So that is one of the ones that um, has, has panned out. And initially when this person tweeted at me, I looked at it and my stomach kind of dropped and I thought, ah, he, he got me. And that was about 200 tweets into this. Um, And it's been in the news a little bit, but it hasn't gotten as much attention as some of the stuff in other places because it was in Texas and the election there wasn't particularly close and it's not clear who she was committing the fraud on behalf yet. Or the last time I checked, it might be now. Um, So, yeah. And then, you know, some of the stuff that's happened in Georgia, I think is there are legitimate red flags there, not about election fraud, but about real total ineptitude amongst some of the election workers. I mean, um, you know, I told my readers in my newsletter that, when these audits and recounts began, statistically and historically, we can look back on the results of recounts and audits in U.S. elections. And it's very rare that they swing an election by more than like a small fraction of a percentage point. Um, And we have two separate instances that actually sound kind of the same, but were totally different in Georgia of election workers literally discovering memory cards that they had not plugged in or had uploaded improperly that were containing thousands of early votes. And both of those memory cards were found in pretty Trump friendly counties. They ended up giving him like a netting him just shy of a thousand votes. Um, It's not going to change the outcome of the race. It might change the outcome of some small local races, but it's a very significant oversight. And, um, you know, I, a lot of people have sort of used that as proof that there might have been democratic fraud. I'd point out that 
you know, the just the pure odds of these election workers who made this mistake being Trump supporters are actually quite high because they're election workers in very Trump heavy counties. So if you're just like pulling two people out of these counties randomly, um, you know, there's like a 70, 30 chance that they support President Trump. So I wouldn't necessarily say that um, there's any proof of some kind of nefarious plot against the president, but it, that is those are two of the biggest mistakes I've ever heard of election workers making in a, in a presidential race before. Okay. So, and I guess it's important to make the distinction between voter fraud and mass voter fraud. So, you know, if, if there are certain individuals on the ground that, that are nefarious in their intent and they actually do want to commit fraud, it's much easier to see how that would happen rather than some, um, widely organized conspiracy in order to change what I believe is needed to be tens of thousands of votes at this point in order to to change the election. So, how how, how different is it, it? Is our election system built in a way that that tens of thousands of votes can actually be can, can be fake the, the way the claims are made? Or, or are these individual instances not something that can scale so well in, ma- in mass numbers? So the, the distinction is actually election fraud and voter fraud. Uh, so voter fraud would be something like, I am living in New York City. I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia that was actually very crucial to the outcome of this election. And I've been in New York for like five years now, seven years now, and I don't have a license there anymore, whatever. Um, if I filed to vote in Pennsylvania and then sent in an absentee ballot uh, to, to cast about in a county or a precinct that I didn't vote in or I don't live in, that I'm technically not legally allowed to vote in, that would be an example of voter fraud. If I voted by mail and then showed up in person and voted a second time in person or tried to, that would be an example of voter fraud. Those are kinds of things that typically get caught in post-election audits. Um, and, and sometimes people get you know arrested or charged for those kinds of things. Election fraud would be the, the systemic breakdown of an election by someone like um, you know, a, a good example recently is a judge in Philadelphia in May was basically caught stuffing ballots in a booth. He was he was being paid to fill out a bunch of election ballots, like hundreds of them at a time, and then go to an ele- election polling places and stuff the ballots. And he was a judge and he got caught and he ended up going to jail. And um, in fact, the judge who sent him to jail in May is the same judge who's overseeing and throwing out a bunch of the Trump administration's voter fraud and election fraud claims now, because that was a real instance of election fraud. And a lot of the claims that we've seen recently are, are, are not holding up under further scrutiny. Uh, so that's election fraud. That does happen. Uh, and the answer to your question is, yes, it's certainly possible. I think getting away with it is extremely difficult. And the reason for that is pretty much every election has a number of guardrails to track and trace how people vote and whether they can legally vote. Um, canvassing is one of the most well-known. That's where, you know, after an election, election workers go out in the area 
and they ask people who they voted for, or they track people down via their records and they, they match up, you know, what the, what the polling showed, what the actual vote total showed, what the turnout showed, what the, what the people saying post-election about who they voted for showed. And if they see discrepancies, like in a canvas, if they see, oh, everyone we talked to in this county said they voted for Trump, but the county went for Biden, then that's like a big red flag. And so they know that they have to go audit the election or something like that. Um, you know, uh, this, aud- this is all being done. The canvassing is being done. Canvassing happens in in pretty much every election um, in most counties. I mean, every state. This is another big issue in the U.S. And one of the things that's, uh, you know, functionally broken about the system we have is that states make their own election laws, uh, which on the one hand, from a constitutional perspective, a lot of people like. I certainly see the appeal of it. The issue is that on a national level, it creates a tremendous amount of confusion and misunderstanding in moments like this, because something that's shady in Florida or Pennsylvania is not shady in Georgia or North Carolina. You know, the the elections are fundamentally run different. So, um, you know, somebody curing their ballot, say, or registering to to vote by mail, even though they don't have any kind of you know, necessary absentee excuse is something you can do in some states, but not something you can do in other states. And so if you're, you know, a Georgia Republican who voted for Trump and you're hearing about all these voters in Pennsylvania who voted by mail without uh, your standard absentee voting excuse, you might think, oh, that's illegal. That shouldn't be allowed. This is broken. But that's actually is legal in Pennsylvania for this election. And it was allowed. And so there's nothing nefarious or dangerous about it. So it creates a lot of friction like that. Um, and then, of course, we you have recounts, which is what we're seeing now in Georgia. They're hand recounting, you know, millions of votes. It's the largest hand recount in American history. That means they're taking paper ballots and counting them, uh, which is insane. If you think about it, I mean, it's the lift to do that is monstrous. And they found some of these um, some of these votes, these early votes that were on uh, these memory sticks or whatever. And, um, that was pretty big news, but outside of that, every indication we've gotten from the Georgia secretary of state so far is that the hand recount is basically showing the exact same outcome as the electronic vote did, uh, which we're going to hear about that officially today, I think. Um, and I don't think that the outcome of that race is going to change. Can a, can a hand recount verify does that verify if if I guess it, it it can verify the the vote total, but can it verify if the vote itself is fraudulent or actually done by by a person willingly? Right? It, it, could there be an instance where you somebody comes and votes in someone else's name, for example, or mails in a vote in somebody else's name? Does a does a hand count solve that, or is that a different issue that needs to be addressed? So, uh, yeah, the the hand count can solve that sometimes, um, but the way that you're going to figure that out typically is via an election audit through the canvassing or through people like uh, the the election workers seeing a bunch of double votes. Uh, oftentimes, how people get caught stuffing ballots or get caught pulling off you know, legitimate election fraud schemes is if you're going to go around, say, and steal a bunch of people's mail-in ballots, absentee ballots that were mailed to them 
fill them out and return them, like the president has alleged a bunch of people did, uh, then when those people actually go vote or when those people send, you know, request a second mail-in or a second absentee ballot and then send that one in, they're going to get flagged as double voters. And so anytime you see that, then you know, like, oh, this whole batch of votes we Mm -hmm. got together, we have like 60 of them are compromised. And, you know, if 60 and 100 votes are compromised, then maybe we know that like the 40 votes that didn't get the double vote were also somebody who like stuffed these ballots and and sent them in. And so like those kinds of red flags come up and then there are investigations and then people figure it out that way. Uh, It's not, it's not simple. I mean, it takes, it's, there's the process to it for sure. So part of the audit process is, is to actually see how many double votes there are and, and see if something looks suspicious in that regard. Yeah. What we'll see when this, um, when this audit in uh, Georgia or in Wisconsin is done is they're going to find people who voted twice, people who like sent in their mail-in ballot and then either came and voted in person because they were doing something illegal or came and voted in person because for some reason they thought their mail-in ballot didn't show up. Um, There were a lot of tools this year actually to track your mail-in ballot. So, uh, you know, like I know my parents voted by mail in Pennsylvania and then they were on a website where they were like, oh, your, your votes at the post office, your votes at the election, your votes been counted. And then they're like, okay, I know. And so somebody tracking that, maybe they get bad information that their vote didn't get there for some reason. Um, mm. They go vote in person because they're worried their vote wasn't counted. Those votes are going to get flagged, you know, when it gets put into the system. Okay all this software will suss out, you know, oh, we have the same person, same address, same name voting twice. Um, That kind of stuff will come up. But again, I mean, we've, some of these audits have already finished. The one in Georgia should be done soon. And we haven't seen anything yet so far um, to to make me think that we're going to see that anything outside the normal has happened, which again, in every election, there's, there's these kinds of, you know, election voter fraud issues come up. It's not, they're not non-existent. Like many people on the left say they absolutely happen. They just typically don't happen in a way where they change the outcome of an election. Right. You, you know, you, you make a good point and it really shows that the partisanship in politics today, which I think we're both working on, you know, addressing many on the left make it seem like there's no fraud whatsoever, but that's only when it's convenient in 2016 you know, many Democrats did not accept Trump being rightfully elected. They thought that Russian meddling was, um, you know, was the case Uh, in the primaries. Many people thought Bernie Sanders was cheated. And again, I'm I'm not making any assertion as to whether fraud took place, but there is a deep trust in our voting process on both sides of the aisle. And it seems like each side cares about it only when it's convenient to them. Is there any effort right now to make the process more secure and, and allow people to regain their trust in in the American democracy, which seem which seems to be like in it it seems to be crumbling to trust in, in our institutions? Is yeah. There any effort to change that? So I'll I'll just say, too, about 2016, I mean, there were polls. I remember, uh, I can't name them off the top of my head exactly, but I I remember vividly there being polls shortly after the election that showed something like 65% of Democrats 
didn't believe that Trump won the election fairly. And I, I mean, that is like a near mirror of what we have right now, except it's Republicans. Right. And and it was, I mean, it's like, if you go back and read some of those, and, and eventually that dissipated, um, you know, over time, but, you know, there were people believed that Russians hacked voting machines, you know, all this stuff that there was no evidence of and no evidence was ever presented of. Um, so it, it's, it absolutely cuts both ways. Um, the answer to the question is, yeah, there are people trying to make it better. And there are people that have really different ideas about how to do that. Uh, I am not totally sold on what the best path forward is. I know that, um, you know, and I'm turning 30 this spring, so I'm a little bit on the younger yes. side in the, in the American electorate. And, uh, I know that amongst my peers, there's like a really strong push for things like, um, you know, the, like blockchain voting, you know, really secure electronic voting that people can do from their phone that makes it more accessible, whatever. Um, and I fundamentally believe that that is the future. And I do think that that's a good path to try and chart forward. But at the same time, we're seeing right now the downside of that, which is like, one candidate is questioning the software behind, um, you know, our voting system, creating all this distrust in it. And the only way we can prove that they're lying about their claims is that we have a bunch of paper ballots and we can recount those paper ballots and say, actually, the software matches what the ballots read, what, you know, how the ballots are read. And so we sort of lose that if we go the all digital route, which has become more concerning to me. You know, if you asked me a month ago, I think I would have been far more on board with that than I am after seeing what's what's happened now. Um, but, you know, in terms of like how this specific election could have gone smoother, there were tons of proposals on the table leading into the election that we could have had all the results, you know, on election night. And I, again, I write a politics newsletter that gives credence to the best arguments on both sides. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not prone to just pointing fingers in a partisan fashion, but state Republicans across the United States did everything in their power, basically, to stop votes from being counted before the election. And they tried to do everything they could to stop votes from being counted after election day. And every state worker in all these major swing states with big populations of people voting by mail said, this is going to be a disaster because we're not going to have election results for a week after the election. And that's exactly what happened because those people knew, you know, it's not just sliding the ballot into the machine and pressing a button and getting a count. All those things I was talking about, the canvassing, the auditing, the recounts, the double checking ballots, the curing ballots that aren't read properly by the machine, those things take time, like humans are doing them. And they knew it's, you know, in a state like Pennsylvania, it's going to take five, six days to count 4 million votes, which is why it took so long for us to get the election results. And a lot of Democrats wanted, they knew that the mail-in voting was going to happen. They wanted to allow the processing and the counting of votes before election day. And that's something that would have done a lot, I think, to help, you know, smooth the election outcome we had. Uh, unfortunately, it was shut down basically at every turn. And you saw the difference, like Florida and Ohio, states like that, they have that process in place. And we got the results 
in those elections on election night. And Florida has it in place because of 2000 and the recount there and all the mess there. They changed their laws because they understood, you know, we have a, a bunch of old people who vote by mail and don't show up to the polls. We need to have a system in place to count and process these votes ahead of election day. And they have that. And it turned out really well. And we all got Florida results on the night of the election. And we literally, you know, if that system is replicated in every state, we have election results, I think, on Tuesday night, maybe maybe early Wednesday morning. And I actually don't think that this election would have been viewed as being particularly close. I mean, the margins are wider than they were in 2016. Um, you know, Joe Biden won pretty comfortably despite some slim margins in some of the battlegrounds, he, he really held the sort of Midwest firewall that people were talking about before the election. And he flipped Georgia and Arizona, which um, are not states Democrats consistently win. So uh, I, I think that hopefully is something people work to address in the future. I don't know what the technological blockchain digital voting stuff looks like. Um, and yeah, I think I'm, I'm much more bullish on that uh, bearish on that than I was before this election. So, you know, I, I'd like to strengthen uh, your support for blockchain. I actually work in in blockchain. That's that's my day job. I uh, I would like to do content full time, but until I get enough Patreon supporters, support me on Patreon. Link in in the description. Um, I, you know, until that happens, blockchain is my day job, and it's a cool, very cool technology, potentially transformative. As you as you alluded to, one of the greatest challenges is that people people might not trust it because it's it's tech that people don't understand. And this really is the thing about blockchain is that it's very hard to understand exactly how it works. But it's I view it as the solution because it's not hackable. You cannot change the votes. It's fully traceable. You don't you wouldn't even need to do any hand recounts or anything like that. You could get election results, you know, within hours. So the fact that in 2020 we're still lagging with, you know, these like archaic voting systems just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's easy to see that and just think that, you know, our, our, our leaders are have some kind of nefarious intent. But I, I, I think if if we just look at, at government, we'll just see a lot of incompetence and it, it probably can be attributed to that. Do you have any theories as to why the Republican uh, lawmakers decided to not allow voting prior to Election Day? I, I do. I'm really curious to ask you, though, given your background, sure, yeah. like, do you view do you think that just the public ledger of blockchain would be enough to convince people you know, of the integrity of the election? Is that basically where you land? I, I, I do. I think there would need to be some education. People just need to better understand how it works, but they, they would need to understand a, a few concepts. First of all, they need to understand that the code is open source. So the, the, the code in which this chain runs on, anybody can view. So that means it could be audited by any anybody who could read code. So you can't say that it's some um, establishment project that only they can see what's going on. Anybody would be able to view the code that, that is written that supports this blockchain. So in that sense, there's full transparency. Then they, they would need to understand how, can, how the consensus, on-chain consensus is created. And, and this is really what makes blockchain special, that it's not. And again, these concepts are, 
are challenging and they're vague. I'm really trying to simplify it. And, and this, this is the challenge, but I think we could bridge this gap. What, what makes blockchain so interesting is that it's not, there's no central entity that controls the data, right? All blockchain is, it's a distributed database. It's a database whose state is confirmed not by one party, but by multiple different parties. So you, you can have a situation where, and it, what does that mean, confirmed? It's, it's essentially a node, which is just, um, which, which is just confirming this, the current state of, of, of a public ledger. So in a bank, you'll have a bank, that bank in their computer says where everybody's money is, right? If the bank decides to, and banks in, in the Western world, we don't have this issue, but there have been instances in, in developing nations where banks just took your money. So that's considered a single point of failure in, in a ledger. The bank can change something and, and take people's money. Bitcoin, which is the most popular blockchain, the people who coded Bitcoin can't change the code and take people's money because in order to do that, they need 51% of all the thousands, it might even be tens, tens of thousands, but there's tens of thousands of computers simultaneously creating a consensus as to what the state of the ledger is. So a coder or a bad actor can't change the ledger because they would need 51% of thousands of different computers to actually, to, to actually make a change. So in, in politics, you know, these nodes could be run by Democrats, Republicans, independents, all sorts of third parties, um, non-political actors. So it, it would be done in a way that a, you could see that the code is legitimate, and B, you could see that the consensus is being done by hundreds or thousands of different nodes and not one central entity, that there shouldn't be any reason for concern. That said, you know, what I'm saying might sound extreme. I hope it was simple enough, but I realize this is a complex topic, and it, it will probably take a little bit of time till people understand it. But I think with the right amount of education, um, and maybe a few elections, I think that public trust in that would be higher than what we're seeing now by far. Yeah, no, I, I do find it to be a compelling solution. Um, so it's interesting to hear you talk about it like that. Um, yeah, I mean, to answer your question before about Republicans, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have perfect insight into what their intentions were. I mean, I could tell you what they said, which is, they don't they didn't want to change election laws so close to an election because it would create a bunch of confusion. Um, you know, I I think that's a pretty big cop out. I think most people who would see that would, you know, it doesn't really pass the basic sniff test. Um, you know, ch changing the laws to say, oh, we're going to expand the time that we can count and process these votes isn't going to create a bunch of confusion on behalf of the voters. Uh, I, I do think there was potentially a risk that you know, if you're processing these votes before the election day and there are leaks coming out from, you know, polling stations that, oh, the, we're getting 80 percent Democrats in mail in votes or something like that, then, you know, there's fears that that could suppress the GOP turnout if it looks like, you know, Trump was going to get blown out of the water or something like that. I don't know if I totally buy that, but I think that's that's probably, you know, a reasonable argument somebody can make about, you know, why making those, you know, processing what the breakdown of party registrations were who sent in these mail-in ballots and stuff like that before the election, it could actually impact the results of the election in some way. Um, and then the, the counting after the election was a little bit simpler. 
and and maybe more um, believable, which is just like we don't want all the post-election chaos. We want to have a result as close to election day as possible. But you know, if the if you take those things together, then you're saying, okay, you can't count the votes before election day. You can't count the votes after election day. That leaves only counting the votes on election day. And we know that the votes that are going to take the longest are the mail-in votes. And we know that the mail-in votes are going to be heavily democratic. And so suddenly like the intention behind it becomes sounds to me a lot more nefarious. And, and I feel you know, a bit angry about that because I'm like, all right, this seems like just a pretty clear ploy to to help your side. It's not about the integrity of the election. It's not about counting all the votes, whatever, whatever. Um, so, you know, there's some stuff in there that I think is worth examining, but I didn't, I didn't find many of the reasons not to do like a, you know, not to get the the vote counting started early, particularly believable. And this was an extraordinary year. I mean, I think it called for extraordinary measures. We are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, it's, it's really bad in a lot of places in the U.S. And I know from talking to voters on the ground, from talking to readers of my newsletter, there were a lot of people, Republican and Democrat, who older Americans who were genuinely scared to go vote in person. Um, and so I thought, the approach to give them another avenue to vote via mail was was totally reasonable given everything that was going on here. Yeah, and I would actually even say that one of the more intellectual lazy claims being made is that how come all the last few percent of votes were such a high percent to Democrats as if that's like, you know, a sign of, of fraud when obviously most mail-in votes are going to, are going to be Biden votes because Trump told his supporters not to vote by mail. So if they're, if they're counting the mail-in votes last and one, one party said vote by mail, the other said don't vote by mail, obviously it's going to be, it's going to be skewed to, to one direction. So that's like, in my opinion, just such a weak claim because it's, you could logically see why, you know, it, it would be that way. Um, and, what, and what's interesting is it almost seems like Trump railing against voter fraud, uh, against mail-in voting, gave him the perfect excuse to losing, which I think, I think it, you know, if you're under, understanding a little bit about his psychological profile, you, you, he can't, he's just not someone who could admit defeat. He just doesn't know how to do that. So this is almost the more obvious reaction than him conceding, which like the thought of him making a concession speech just seems real foreign. Like I can't even imagine that. But him going down this path seems very reasonable for if you know him. So it it seems like it did give him a very convenient uh, excuse to losing. But you ha- you have to wonder if he were to also promote uh, mail in voting, it that may have skewed the vote in his favor. So yeah, I mean. You know, I, I'll I'll say like uh, you know t- to everything that you just said um, we knew I mean I I was just reading a newsletter I wrote that was 99 days before the election I sent out a newsletter that was like 99 days until the election and it was my update about like where things stood in the polls you know and I was basically saying like I think this is going to be closer than people think. And I think Trump is going to lose. But, you know, here's what to expect on Election Day. And this was three months before the Election Day. And the things I was talking about were we're going to have the so-called like red mirage, which is that 
a bunch of the votes from Republicans are going to be counted first in the Midwest on election night. So we're going to see that Trump jumps out to an early lead and we're going to have the blue mirage in the South and Texas and Florida because they have the process of counting the mail-in votes and processing the mail-in votes early. And we're going to hear a lot of blue enthusiasm down there. And then those things are going to cross because Trump was performing better in Florida than he was in the Midwest. And Biden was performing better in the Midwest than he was in Florida. And like, I mean, I said that three months ahead of the election. And there are a lot of people smarter than me who are tracking this stuff. And and like that outcome was obvious. And then, of course, I think similar to what you said, like, um, you know, I personally did not ever expect the president to concede, you know, for better or for worse. He's a he's a fighter, quote unquote, and his supporters love what he's doing right now. And I think like, um, you know, he he's good at what he's doing. He's muddying the waters and he's he's sowing a lot of doubt. But, uh, you know, I don't think that, that anything is going to change between now and Inauguration Day. I mean, if all you have to do is look at the court cases and. Um, you know, in most of the the post-election cases that they're um, filing right now, they're not even alleging widespread fraud. I mean, they're saying in these press conferences and stuff they are. But if you actually read the affidavits, you read the documents they're putting forward, it's a lot of just stuff about the system being unfair and the disadvantage they got. It's not they're not alleging the same thing that they say about like the Dominion voting systems and, you know, ballots being stuffed and that kind of thing. I mean, because if you make baseless allegations in court, there are actual repercussions for them. How, how do you see the, the the next few months playing out? Um, it's funny. I actually tweeted like a little bit of a thread about that today too, um, which, you know, I, I, I think we're sort of in like phase three or four of like the five phase stage, which I was seeing, which was like the pre-Trump's pre-election stage was like, you know, railing on mail-in ballots, like you were talking about, saying that they were fraudulent, that this wasn't a safe way to run an election. The doubt was sowed. Phase two was election day, immediately post-election, flood the zone with like anything that had a peculiar whiff um, and claiming that this was proof of election fraud, which was how my thread started and how my coverage on this started was sort of going through and analyzing some of those claims Uh, phase three was the court cases, which were sort of coming to an end now, I think, um, you know, they, they have a few more things they're, they're saying they're going to file, but, uh, so far they're one in 29 in, in post-election court cases in terms of they've won one and they've had 29 dismissed or they've conceded and, and withdrew the, the allegations. So I think we're about wrapping that up and then. Phase four is going to be the pressure that we're seeing now, which is Trump um, and his team going after the actual state electors who are responsible for certifying the vote. Uh, That's going to be pretty interesting to watch play out. Um, But I don't think anything's ultimately going to change there. I mean, we saw in, in the one county in Michigan and Wayne County that they were deadlocked and then um, they broke the deadlock and then after the, the the Republican electors had like a huge pour of criticism and some of them got death threats and some really ugly stuff happened that should not happen. And they reversed their decision to block the, the vote, um, to block the certification. 
And now they're saying they want to undo that, which they can't legally do. So those votes are certified and the state electors in Michigan are going to certify the vote. I mean, I, I would be absolutely shocked if they didn't. They've said publicly already that they haven't seen any credible evidence of widespread fraud. So they're planning to certify the votes. And I think um, that phase four is where we are now, basically, which is all the focus on certification. Um, that's going to happen between now and Wait, Christmas. And, and re- real quick, was there there was some success in Detroit with not not having the, the vote certified, correct? Sort of, yeah. I mean, basically, the county certifies the vote first, and then it goes to the state. And if the county can't certify the vote, then the state has the ultimate say. Um, so the state can certify a county's vote without the county certifying it. So um, the fact that they deadlocked was very newsy because that never happens. And the the two Republicans who said that they weren't going to certify the vote, basically every board has two Democrats, two Republicans. They said that they weren't certifying it because they they had questions that still weren't answered about the integrity of the vote. But it was very clearly targeted in areas in Detroit um, that are heavily black, heavily democratic. So a lot of the response to it from the left was like, this is either racist or this is a clear suppression of just democratic votes and not votes elsewhere. They were trying to certify every county except the county that encompassed Detroit. Um, And the Republican state electors who have more power than them uh, same deal, two Republicans, two Democrats at the state level. The two Republicans have already said publicly were, you know, they've really worded the statements very carefully to sort of not piss anybody off, but they've basically said, we're going to certify the vote unless we see any proof of, of widespread fraud. Um, and that has not happened. So I don't expect that they're going to hesitate to certify the votes. I think it'll happen soon. Um, and every state certification process, the deadlines are different. Again, this is why the American election system has some serious flaws because it's not nationalized. And uh, I don't know if nationalizing it is the solution, but we're seeing the flaws of the state system now. Uh, but between now and Christmas, I think we'll see all those votes certified. Once that happens, the phase five to me is like Republicans sort of start abandoning Trump Um you know, the court cases die, Biden gets inaugurated, and it becomes like a smaller subset of 10 or 15% of the country that claiming the election was stolen and fraud and whatever. And that, you know, I don't know what Trump's going to do if he's going to run in 2024, if he starts campaigning, if he starts a media company. But I think he's the, the, the elected Republicans are going to start to jump ship pretty soon. Some of them already are in the last week. Um, but once the certification happens, that'll kind of be the, that'll be like the end of it really. Right. Yeah. We, we can assume that Trump will go to the grave claiming that he was cheated and so will some percentage of his electorate. What, what do you think that percentage would be at if we do like a poll one year from now? Just, just a fun guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it'll be, you know, about 15%, give or take, I think, of America. You know, I think I think a third of Trump supporters are going to feel as if the election was was stolen, um, which, I, you know, sucks because I don't, I don't know that there's any evidence that can be brought forward to convince them. Otherwise, at this point, I think there's been enough doubt sowed. And I think we saw the same thing. 
you know, I'm sure a percentage of Democrats are still saying that about 2016, despite no evidence that Russia changed any votes or whatever, you know, um, I, I, I think the difference between 2016 and 2020 is that while Hillary Clinton uh, has, you know, called Trump an illegitimate president and blamed her loss on things like the FBI investigation and mm-hmm. Russia disinformation, she never claimed mm-hmm. that you know, votes were switched. She didn't claim, she right. didn't, re- she didn't refuse to concede the election. She didn't ch- file a bunch of recount challenges. There were recounts in 2016, but they were filed by independent candidates like Jill Stein and stuff. Um, you know, she basically made noise, but didn't actually come for the institutions that certify the vote. She didn't do what Trump's doing now, which is like, if Trump were tweeting and making all this noise, but he wasn't filing all the lawsuits and forcing all the recounts and firing people at the Department of Homeland Security. That's the kind of stuff that's like him going the extra mile in delegitimizing the results of the election. I think Hillary did it in her own way of in a, in a more, you know, political presidential way where she issued carefully worded statements and went on these highbrow podcasts and did interviews with the New York times and said things like, you know, Russia, 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 whatever. And all that stuff was also bullshit. I mean, there was some smoke there, but ultimately there was never any fire. Uh, But I I do think there's a big difference between what she did and what Trump's doing now. And I think what Trump's doing now is is quite a bit more dangerous. Yeah. So, you know, I'm having some thoughts as you're saying this. So first of all, it seems that the most damage Trump did as president is how he lost because that's long-term damage. The the 15% who now has a lack of trust in our, our you know, in the American democracy, I, I feel like that might be the worst thing he's done yet. People might debate me on that, but, you know, that, that will have long-lasting effects. When trying to compare how Hillary approached it compared to Trump, I'm trying, I'm trying to understand. You're saying the way Hillary did it. So, so first of all, I, I thought the way the Democrats lost, they were also very big sore losers. I, I agree it was different than Trump, but they were definitely sore losers. They never took responsibility and reflected on what they could have done differently. They, you know, as you said, they blamed the FBI investigation. They blamed Bernie Sanders. Uh, they, they blamed Russia. They never really looked within and tried to reflect and try to grow you know, as a party. And, and maybe I'm trying to hold the political party to too high a standard, but that's what I expect people to do in general. You, you lose. Understand why I don't blame those around you. But are, are you saying it's not that approach wasn't as bad because it wasn't just so blatantly. It, it was kind of making excuses, but not just making up flat out lies. I'm saying that that Hillary Clinton, if she had done what Donald Trump is doing now, if she had refused to concede the election, if she had used the power of her legal team to try and throw out legally cast ballots all across the country, if she had nonstop tweeted television appearances, radio broadcast appearances, spreading baseless conspiracy theories of, you know, videos of election machines switching votes or something and saying, oh, look, here was a Russian hack, whatever. If she did all of that in 2016, the damage that she would have done 
to the mindset of Democrats would have been far worse than what she did. Now, I still think she sowed doubt. And I still agree that, you know, I mean, like a month ago, she did an interview where she called Trump an illegitimate president. I don't think Trump's an illegitimate president. I think he campaigned better than she did. And I think he won the election. And I think he won because more people voted for him. That's not that's not illegitimate. Um, But I, I, you know, she didn't test the bounds of the institutions that are supposed to ensure the person who gets more votes ends up as president. Trump is doing that right now. I mean, meeting with electors and calling electors and trying to get them to buck the actual vote tally outcome is, I mean, that's, that's like the most fundamental thing to our democracy. You know, Hillary Clinton could have done that in 2016, but she didn't. And, and that kind of thing is like, if, God willing, I I think the odds of it are extremely, extremely low. But if something like that were to happen, I mean, people that's going to cause like civil unrest. People will pour out in the streets. Like that's the kind of thing where like if two people who are supposed to represent and are legally bound to represent the popular vote of their state refuse to do that and try and push through their own preference for president, um, you know, all hell's going to break loose. And that is like, you know, the fact that he's not succeeding at doing that doesn't make it any more okay. I mean, I think we have to talk about it as if the outcome were were real, you know, if if he if he got what he was trying to do. Yeah, it's it's almost as if he'd be willing to start a civil war just to save face, which which is crazy to think about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it's not even, you know, I don't think he has interest in starting a civil war. I think he has interest in buying time. And I think he, you know, I don't think there's a huge end game here. I think he's just like, he's working the current news cycle and he'll work the next news cycle. I mean, two weeks ago, it was all about Hunter Biden's emails. And, you know, now it's all, you know, a week ago, it was all about mail-in voting and it was all about fraudulent mail-in votes and ballots being thrown out. And this week, it's all about Dominion voting systems. You know, there's there's like a cycle that he's riding. Um, and I, I don't think there is like a proper end game. But I do think that, you know, things could easily be going a lot worse than they are, which is like the institutions are holding pretty strong. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just looking at the comments, like, I, I, I think that a fair count yeah, is yeah, comment here. I could bring it up on the screen as well. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I think a, a fair count is what everybody wants. And I, I think that a recount in this election, um, first of all, is underway. The canvassing and the audits are happening all across the country. Uh, and so far, like there, there hasn't been a major discrepancy outside of the issues that we ran into in the two Georgia counties we talked about at the top of the show. And I do think those are really significant, notable, historically bad human errors. They're not proof of voter fraud. Um, they're not proof of election fraud. And, you know, the the burden of proof is on the accuser. I mean, we're, this is the United States. You don't get to say that there's been widespread election fraud and not have proof of the widespread election fraud. I mean, what Trump is doing in court is saying, um, you know, we we have suspicion about these things. We want to delay the certification until we can provide the evidence to back up our claims. That's not how it works. Like in, in, in this country and the justice system we built, that is not how it works. It's never been how it works. You don't get to to say, oh, I think this thing happened. I want 
you know, everything to stop, pause everything. Nobody gets elected. No electors go in. We're going to spend the next month trying to provide evidence of fraud. Like that's, that's not the way it goes. You have to have the evidence when you come to court. And so far they don't have that evidence. And the reality of that is seen easily by just looking at the outcome of all of these court cases where their allegations are basically getting laughed at or thrown out or they're withdrawing them themselves. Um, I, you know, several Trump lawyers have now been asked directly in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan and Georgia, are you alleging voter fraud? Are you alleging election fraud? And the answer is no, because those lawyers are bound to answer those questions honestly under oath. And then they go do their press conference and they say something totally different. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to wait for the count. I hope that, uh, you know, when the count is concluded, all the recounts are concluded, that that gets more buy-in from the country about what really happened. I don't think we're going to see that buy-in from the president, which, again, is why I think what he's doing is more dangerous than what Hillary Clinton did. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I have I have a few more questions, but I, we are running out of time. So I, I guess we'll leave it with what do you think Trump does next? Does he, you, you mentioned either he runs in 2024 or he starts a media company. I personally don't think he's going to run in 2024 because if he didn't win now, he's not going to win then, you know, in my opinion. But what, what do you think he's going to do? I, I imagine that he's going to announce a 2024 run pretty, pretty quickly. If, if when Biden's inaugurated. Um, but I think that, uh, I would be surprised if he follows through and actually runs. I, I could very easily imagine him campaigning and having rallies and building up, you know, his support and his base across the country for the next two or three years. Um, look, I'm a New York based reporter. Uh, I know the story of Donald Trump. Well, I work with people who have been reporting on Donald Trump for 30 or 40 years. I know friends of Donald Trump. I talk to people on his staff off the record. Um, my impression of the president is that he really loves the power and the, the sort of essence of the job, but that it's been quite hard on him and his family and that he would much rather be getting that attention on his own without the pressure of having to function inside like the bureaucratic system that is the federal government. And so I'm not totally convinced that after two years of being on the outside of the presidency and getting a lot of the same attention he got when he was president, which I think he will get, that he's going to want to come back into office. Um, I could be wrong, but uh, I, I don't expect that to happen. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know totally where he goes, but I do think he's going to announce for 2024. I think he'll campaign. Um, I, I'm not convinced that he'll run for sure, you know, until we get to 2024 and look, Biden is old and frail and all that stuff, but you know, Trump's no, he's, he's not the youngest guy in the world either. He's the oldest president yeah. we've, we've ever had besides Reagan. So, um, yeah. you know, yeah, he'll he'll be 78 in four years. And, and I don't know if he'll have any interest in, in running at that age, you know. Right. OK, well, interesting times, to say the least. I hope um, we can restore trust in our electoral process sooner rather than later. Um, it's been a great pleasure having you on. I'd, I'd love to do this again sometime. And 
continue continue the awesome work. Maybe you want to give a shout out to to what you're doing. Uh, some last thoughts. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would love to come back and chat uh, in a couple months, and we can revisit where some of these you know theories and threads and and all this stuff are. I mean, uh, you know, I said it. Um, I said it at the top of the show, but yeah, I have a, I have a newsletter. Uh, it's called tangle tangle.substack.com. I believe that, um, you know, political news in America is fundamentally broken. I think that too many reporters and too many pundits are not transparent about their biases are hiding their biases are reporting the news, um, in an incomplete fashion. And so I've set out on a mission to present both, the left and the right and their best arguments about what the news of the day and the topic of the day is. And then I often offer my take um, and I'm not trying to hide my politics. I am like a center left ish person. Um, I think like most Americans, my political views are really incongruent. I'm right on Israel and I'm right on gun rights and I'm right on, you know, free speech and I'm left on things like healthcare or, you know, police reform. And so uh, I, I'm a mixed bag, which I think a lot of Americans are. And, um, you know, I encourage people who are watching to to go check out Tangle. Uh, it's growing. It's read by, you know, tons of people in the U.S. and a, a big growing foreign audience to people who are interested in U.S. politics. So, um, yeah, it'll be it'll be a crazy few months and I'm sure there's going to be a lot to write about. But uh, I think when the dust settles, a lot of the stuff that I talked about today will, will become like more apparent and, and more clear going forward. Cool. Great. I'm, I'm actually going to subscribe to, to tangle because that's exactly what I've been, uh, what I've been looking for. And you know, that's, that's what we're doing here. So hopefully we could c collaborate more in the future. Uh, thanks again for your time, Isaac. Thank you, Adar.